And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virtual Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. And, yes, it's Friday. We have reached the completion of our broadcast week, and we're going to finish strong, you know, as we always do here in the dojo. Uh, whenever you're working out, you always want to finish your workout treatment strong. You don't want to wimp out on the last couple of reps <laughs> when you're pumping iron. And uh, so that's what we're going to do today. And indeed, uh, I am really fired up about today's episode because we're going to get a hands-on apologetics exclusive. Now, just to show you how cutting edge of the cutting edge of apologetics this program is, we're going to talk about a book. You're going to get a sneak peek at a book that hasn't even been published yet. Okay. <laughs> So it's uh, usually we have people on to talk about books that are literally just hot off the presses. This is actually going to be a sneak preview of a book that is already just starting to end uh, end its editing phase and moving into uh, layout and production and everything. And it's going to be on a, a very important topic of the papacy. Okay. Uh, the papacy, papal uh, apologetics, uh, foundation of the papacy, scripture, tradition. Um, you know, for a number of years, uh, this has been a big portion of the new apologetics movement. But it was pretty much set in stone. Uh, there was some development in it uh, over the last couple of decades. Not a lot. Um, however, I think uh, with the conversion of Swansona, uh, just a couple of years ago, I believe, um, who was a fairly well-known uh, lay Protestant who uh, was uh, dialoguing with some very well-known uh, Protestant scholars, began to investigate things, and lo and behold, he discovered the papacy. And uh, Swan's scriptural scholarship is tremendous. And uh, he kind of revived interest in the area of uh, the foundations of the papacy in Scripture. And uh, I'm pleased to say that there is going to be continued work in that area, and that's who our guests are going to be. Yes, we're going to have two guests, none other than our good friend, Master Apologist William Albrecht, and Father Christian Kappas as well. They're going to talk about their yet-to-be-published book, the Papacy Rediscovered in Scripture. The Papacy Rediscovered in Scripture. So that's going to be a ton of fun. I can't wait to have both gentlemen on the show, and uh, we're going to talk about their book and their discoveries and their new approaches on the subject. Like I said, if you're watching the show, you're on the cutting edge of the cutting edge of apologetics, and uh, I'm just thrilled that uh, I was able to... Uh, you know, be friends with these gentlemen and that they're willing to do this on the air before the book is even published. So that's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do our Finding the Fallacy. And since it's Friday, we switch things up here in the dojo. 
Instead of uh, uh, informal fallacies, on Fridays we look at propaganda techniques. Today's propaganda techniques called the glittering generalities. And we also meet an early church father every show. Today's early church father is an early church father I had imagined is not very well known. Uh, and that's what makes him important, folks. You know, he's not uh, an Augustine or Jerome. You know, he's not an Origen or a Basil the Great. He is Gregory of Elvira. Gregory of Elvira. So, got our docket set. We're ready to roll. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show. So, welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also the live stream peeps. Howdy. Good to see you. Figuratively speaking, at least you can see me. I can't see you. Um, but it's good that, that you're here with us also. I want to welcome all of you uh, either listening or watching via podcast around the world and in the future. So hello, all you future people out there. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. By the way, uh, let me give you a couple of things. If you uh, maybe you want to check out this sneak preview of this book on the papacy, but you can't listen to the whole program, well, never fear, because uh, virginmostpowerfulradio.org is here. You can access this show and all the other shows Virgin Most Powerful produces right there on the flagship website and also on the phone app, too, by the way. And while you're there, you can also share the show with other people, tell people about us, and uh, please help spread the word. Uh, that helps us. It helps them. And uh, it's good all the way around. Um, also, want to mention my uh, the official dojo email so if you want to email me, the best way to do that, folks, is at questions at handsonapologetics.com. Questions at handsonapologetics.com. That comes directly to me, and I do try to answer the email. So I, I know I'm usually behind, but nevertheless, um, I think uh, you know I, I do my best to get back to you. So if you haven't heard from me in a while, please send me another email. I'll try to... to uh, to get to ASAP. All right, so without further ado, why don't we go to the finding of fallacy, which I said is a propaganda technique of glittering generalities. Well, the name pretty much says it all. Glittering means that it's attractive. It attracts the eye. It's something positive. And generalities is just that. It's so general. It's nonspecific. It's ambiguous. Put the two together, you have a propaganda technique of glittering generalities. That is, there are certain words and phrases that people just naturally gravitate to, have positive feelings about, and likely to affirm, like freedom or hope, right? I mean, uh, who would be against freedom or think poorly about freedom? Or who would be against hope or think poorly about having hope, right? Pretty much no one. Those are terms that are glittering. They're attractive. We have positive feelings about them. But they're also generalities. They're ambiguous. because, In fact, they're meaningless unless they're, they pertain to a particular object, right? Uh, for example, freedom in and of itself means nothing unless you specify whether it's freedom to do something or for something or freedom from something. And unless that's specified... Freedom can pretty much mean anything. Uh, same thing's true with hope. You know, you have to hope for something. 
or hope against something. Hope in and of itself is so vague and general, it really doesn't have meaning. So uh, the glittering generalities, as you can tell, is the use of some terms like this, and there's many, many terms like this, uh, that's usually peppered throughout a propaganda technique so that people will generally affirm or feel good about a particular person, idea, product, what have you, without um, actually uh, promising anything. <laughs> you know, it's pretty much whatever you read into uh, the propaganda technique. That's what it is. And it's been used very effectively, especially in politics. Uh, I need not give you examples, uh, but it's used elsewhere as well. So the, the thing about propaganda techniques, folks, is once you know it's being used on you, its magic disappears. It it's no longer has power. And so now that you're informed, it, you are immune as long as you keep your antennas up and be aware of the glittering generalities propaganda technique. All right, so let's go to meet our early church father today, who is Gregory of Elvira. Like I said, not exactly a household name like Augustine or Jerome, but nevertheless, he is part of that collection of early church witnesses to the original faith. And Gregory of Elvira, uh, Jerome speaks highly of Gregory, Bishop of Elvira, who, who apparently was still living during the time of Jerome, already uh, in ripe old age at the year of 392 AD, when Jerome included him in his treatise on virtuous men, or illustrious men, excuse me. He uh, remarks that Gregory is the author of a work called De Fide, or Of the Faith. Sometimes it's titled The Orthodox Faith. But whether or not he is the author of the presently considered title of De Fide, according to Jurgen's Faith, the Early Fathers, by the way, is a question that has long puzzled scholars. The, the De Fide Orthodoxa uh, contra uh, Iranios has been variously attributed to Gregory of Nanzianzus, to uh, Ambrose of Milan, Virgilius of Thapsus, and Phobad of Agen. And also, of course, Gregory of Elvira. It's no longer possible to hold that Gregory of Nanzianzus, Ambrose, or Virgilius, or Forbad is regarded as uh, any more likely an author of the work than Gregory. So the latest scholarship basically is inclined to follow, to have him as the author of the Orthodox faith. He also, by the way, has homilies on the sacred books. These are 20 homilies. <coughs> excuse me, that were first published in Paris in 1900. And um, it uh, the, originally it was thought to possibly be the work of origin. Others voiced opinion, however, that the homilies ought to be not attributed to origin, but to novation. Further research has shown, however, that they uh, beseek of a Trinitarian theology of such character, uh, such character as to date them in the second half of the fourth century, and thereby through exclusion, uh, they're attributed to Gregory of Elvira. And that's our early church father for today, Gregory of Elvira. Coming up on the other side of the break, we're going to have William Albrecht and Father Christian Kappas going to give us a sneak preview of a yet-to-be-published book on the paper. Stay tuned. 
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, Hands-On Apologetics. Well, you know, as I mentioned in the, the introduction to the show, got a very exciting show today because you're going to get a sneak preview of cutting-edge apologetics and research in the area of the papacy with a book that has yet to be published, but it's on the verge of going to the publisher. It's a book that's uh, co-written by William Albrecht and Father Christian Kappas. It's, uh, and the title of today's program is The Papacy Rediscovered in Scripture. And uh, gentlemen, welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, thank you for having us. Thrilled to be here with you. Great. Uh, Father, are you there? Hmm. Okay, uh, Richard, I see he's talking, but I don't hear anything. Yeah, I don't hear anything either. That is weird. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, hold on, Father. Um, we, we, there is a technical problem here, and I think it's on our end, too. So, um, oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, so it, well, well, yeah, while so you William. work that out, um, yeah. yeah, let me let me uh, tell the audience, we're, we're thrilled to be here. Hopefully we can get it all uh, ironed out, those technical difficulties. Thrilled to talk about this book that, God willing, will be out very soon. And uh, you're going to find a lot of texts reexamined, perhaps looked at in a light that maybe have not been examined before in a long time, very patristic-based and uh, one other thing that I think the audience are going to really love, Gary, is, is uh, a heavy emphasis as well in proving the incredible role of the Pope, of the papacy through history, also uh, through the lenses of the enemies of the faith. So we also believe that hostile witnesses are important, uh, as you've shown in an incredible book you've put together. A lot of the times they provide an incredible case for the Catholic position. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that's great. You know what, uh, William? Um, yes. Uh, I, and uh, I think, and by the way, Father Kappas, if you're listening, uh, go ahead, call back in, and uh, we'll see if we can get you on the air. Um, so <laughs> I, I love technical problems. <laughs> so, you know, William, it's interesting because the topic of the papacy, as you well know, was kind of dormant. It was... Mm -hmm. uh, cemented in place for quite a while. Yep. And it was only recently, I think, with Swansona, you know, becoming Catholic, that uh, ultimately, uh, suddenly, there's new interest and new scholarship coming to the fore in, the, in this area of apologetics. Yeah, very interesting you bring up Swan. He's, he's a friend of ours, and uh, interestingly enough, um, we shared uh, a lot of our research with Swan as Swan was uh, preparing for debates and talks and what have you, uh, because the book has been, we've been working on it for a little bit of time now. Uh, but yes, definitely, uh, we commend Swan for, for doing great work. And uh, we're glad that um, that he's doing well. And um, I, I think from last that I heard, Swan was going to get right back into doing apologetics. We've been praying for him. And uh, we're excited to really... Uh, perhaps provide an examination um, of texts that maybe a lot of times Catholics really kind of gloss over. And I think that'll be really, really important. And the book is going to have a lot of unique things to it and perhaps some translations that people have not seen before as well. Awesome. Uh, Father Kappas, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me finally? Ah, yes, we can hear you. 
There we go. Yeah, it's good to be with you. <laughs> yeah, so this is an exciting project. Uh, so, gentlemen, uh, well, I'll ask Father Kappas, uh why the papacy? Why, why write a well, book on the papacy? Uh, as you know, um, when we have transitions from one papacy to another, there's differences in style, and every pope, whether from the outside, meaning those who are not baptized or uh, juridical members of the church, or from the inside, that is, people that are unhappy with this or that administration policy, can get frustrated that uh, there's not always a, a clear distinction between what we have the ability to challenge a pope on and and to and what we really need to accept as being part of his authority. Now, canon law gives us some really good ideas on this, um, but what is perhaps the most important thing is what does Scripture uh, have to say as the font of divine revelation uh, for how we should think about the papal office that helps us understand with St. Peter's role, uh, the lens through which we should be making prudent uh, challenges or uh, respectful submission to the, to the pontiff. And I think that's a very apropos topic uh, these last several papacies, uh, particularly since the Second Vatican Council. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And even in the area of apologetics, like uh, William and I were discussing while we were trying to get you back online, uh, you know, there's been a resurgence of interest in uh, the origins of the papacy and uh, uh, just back and forth apologetics that uh, has bloomed maybe in the last couple of years and before it was pretty much set in stone before then. So I, I I think this is a great time to come out with a book on the papacy. Yeah, I think that the uh, real advantage of this book is uh, we've really left no part of Scripture untouched, and uh, there's, a, there's a narrative that I think that presents itself still illogically. That is, when you concentrate on the Greek New Testament, that is the, the original language in which it was written in by God's inspiration, and you start comparing the vocabulary and the themes that are uh, repeated in the New Testament, special vocabulary. For example, you may have heard of uh, certain groups of Christians called Church of God. They call themselves Church of God. Well, they're using a New Testament Greek passage, in which that's a technical name for the Church in Acts of the Apostles, but also used by St. Paul. So we're seeing that there's a link between this idea of Church of God in the Apostles and St. Paul, they're, they're, they're sharing a common vocabulary. Well, that, that certainly suggests a point of contact between these two, two documents. And so we're able to get a lot of information uh, by finding these points of contact, by organizing them. And ultimately, what we uh, end up coming up with is kind of a, a brief narrative like this, and then I'll kind of let William take over, um, maybe talk a little bit about the patristic reception of this. But basically, what we find is in the Council of Jerusalem, the, we, we can call, at least within the definition of the, of the uh, Code of Canon Law, now in force for the Latin East and the Greek West, uh, or the, the Latin West and the Greek East in our uh, Codes of Canon Law, is an ecumenical council. It was called, it was presided over, and it was approved by a pope, and it came up with some decrees around 48 AD, dealing with a problem of uh, fights about whether or not Christians should observe circumcision as an obligation of the new law of Jesus Christ. And uh, the decree of Jerusalem, which is actually reproduced in uh, Acts of the Apostles, tells us there are four major issues that we should be expecting in 48 AD, which we actually find continuously being addressed in the later documents. And that is circumcision. Secondly, whether or not there should be an avoidance of food that has been offered to a pagan idol before one eats it. Sexual morality, um, which will 
find out there's a list of those things provided by St. Paul. And then finally, kosher food, which is perhaps just symbolically referred to by the strangulation of animals, which is one of the principal uh, concerns of whether or not you have kosher food. So once we look at the Council of Jerusalem, which is in 48, so, so thereabouts, A.D., when we start looking at the first epistles of Paul, Corinthians and Galatians, we see that these exact same decrees of the Council of Jerusalem are the very concentration of what St. Paul is doing, but this also comes on the heels of St. Peter, who was the leader and speaker uh, of the truth. In fact, James calls it consistent with or harmonious with prophecy when Peter speaks at the Council of Jerusalem. Um, his ideas on this are true in the faith, but his example that he sets because of his all-too-familiar weakness in the Gospels uh, is that in a moment of weakness, he chooses not to have a common table from which everyone eats. The implications there might be even a Eucharistic table, uh, because at that time we hadn't separated out meals from the celebration of the Eucharist as of yet. And so what we see is, is that because you can't eat at the same table, you can't have Eucharist from the hands of Peter either. And Paul is very upset about this because it sets a bad example for other Christians, other local churches in Antioch, third largest uh, community uh, uh, city in the empire. It has all these roads. It has all these centers for anything from Roman t excise tax centers to archives. Anything that happens in Antioch is going to reverberate throughout the empire. It's, Peter is caught uh, accidentally uh, spitting on the sidewalk in Antioch. Everybody's going to hear about it in Rome, and that's exactly what happens here. Um, Peter has a faux pas. Wh whatever his motives were, Paul comes up as a fellow apostle and corrects him to his face, as he tells us in Galatians 1 and 2, where he sets up this the situation trying to clear the air in Galatia because the Galatians are so scandalized. They want to hear uh, what really happened because it's, it's reverberating throughout the empire. And uh, what, what we end up happening in summary then is that uh, we find out that Paul and Peter have to deal with an apostolic office, which has these powerful keys, but it doesn't preserve a pope from making administrative or errors by example. And so the book really unfolds by showing you how the Gospels, which are written later than the, than the Council of Jerusalem, that's 48 Gospels, probably at the earliest, if you want to argue, something like the 50s or 60s, um, they're all responding to local communities' distress over the scandal of Peter. And what is the Gospel response? Well, don't you remember when Peter scandalized, scandalized everybody, including Jesus, at the uh, at Caesarea Philippi, where he said, you are son of God, and then he said, uh, don't die on the cross, Jesus, and he said, get behind me, Satan. Don't you remember when uh, Peter, who uh, said, I'll die for you, Jesus, and he uh, ended up running away uh, and denying Jesus three times? Do we remember that Jesus appointed with foreknowledge that Peter was going to fall, this guy, that many times he betrayed him in the New Testament, and your guys are all worried about the local church, that Peter messed up again? Well, Jesus knew he was going to mess up. So, what we see is the Gospels are a later response to the cleanup, uh, reminding the church communities that are suffering from this Peter-Paul incident in later times. Uh, it's a response by bringing back all the Peter passages where he's been weak before, but Jesus still had 100% confidence in him leading the, the structure and, and to carry out the constitution of the new church. So I'll leave it there and let uh, William kind of take over. 
Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, very interesting take to to focus on uh, the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, William, we have less than a minute, so maybe you can give a little introduction, and then when we come back, you could pick it up from there. Yeah, let me tell people that, uh, let me leave them with a little bit of a cliffhanger of what the great St. Jerome says in regards to Galatians 2. He says, no one can doubt, therefore, that the apostle Peter was himself the author of that rule with deviation from which he is charged. And he goes on to uh, to describe that. And the one thing that I'll leave the audience with a little bit of a cliffhanger on is that the narrative, the way we break it down in the book, you will find that the early church fathers very much agree. You will also find that the hostile witnesses also agree with the very thesis of our book. And I know it's almost time for the break, so we'll leave them with uh, with that little cliffhanger there. All right. Yeah, that's a good one, too. So, uh, yeah, we're going to look at the patristic uh, witness, both positive and negative, and uh, see how they correlate together together. Uh, coming up right after this break. We're chatting with William Albrecht of PatristicPillars.com, Father Christian Kappas about a yet-to-be-published book on papacy. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero, You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Father Christian Kappas and William Albrecht about their yet-to-be-published book. And by the way, before you begin, William, I know you set up that beautiful cliffhanger. Uh, Do you have a working title or a title that it will be published under? Yeah, I'll let let, uh, Father um, uh, answer that. Father, you want to tackle that one? Sure. Yeah, I think that what we're sitting with right now, now we're, we've gone through a couple iterations of this, but the definitive guide to the papacy in the Bible, because it's so extensive. Okay, okay. Uh, so okay, I'll put that down, definitive guide to the papacy in the Bible. Okay, very good. All right, so William, yeah, so bring it on. Let's hear about the patristic uh, reception of uh, what Father just laid out. Yeah, I think that that really is uh, very important. The fact that when we look at the Galatians incident, when we look at what people, what incredible fathers like the great St. Jerome have to say, and indeed, uh, when we also look at, and you'll find this in the book as well, the patristic witness to the Council of Jerusalem, I think that the one area uh, that does get a bit neglected at times is really digging in and examining what happened and what was said there at the Council of Jerusalem. And I think when you look at the patristic witness, as Father uh, talked about how important the Council of Jerusalem is, the church is gathered there, but exactly what, what occurs there? And, and the amazing thing is when we look at the patristic witness, Gary, we have multiple figures that provide incredible and extensive commentary. One particular one is a magnificent Greek author, the Greek writer, the golden mouth one, the great St. John Chrysostomos, who says when commenting and we'll talk a little bit about uh, Jerusalem in just a moment. He says, through my mouth, in regards to the Council of Jerusalem, see how Peter shows that God spoke through him. That goes right to the heart of what uh, Father Coppus was talking about, how this is viewed as prophetic. And then he goes forward and says, notice how Peter first allows the question to be debated in the church 
And then he speaks. He's talking about his incredible authoritative role. And then when we look at the great St. Jerome, St. Jerome, talking about the Council of Jerusalem, says Peter was the prime mover in issuing the decree by which this was affirmed. Moreover, Peter was the one of so great authority. So you have incredible early patristic witness and a master in the great St. Jerome, doctor of the church and a Greek church father as well. So just a little bit of a taste of what we have and what we're going to unveil for the audience. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. So, uh, so you have this trajectory of, uh, you know, the, uh, the whole issue about, uh, the dietary law, circumcision, so on and so forth, uh, being contested. And then you have Peter's, uh, um, well, I, I don't know how to say like faux pas, you know, and yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, where where uh, Paul withstands him to his face, and then you make the argument that the, the gospel is being written afterwards. Therefore, want to bring out those instances in while Christ was here, of where uh, Peter uh, trips over himself and so on, but nevertheless, still, um, you know, it still holds the authority. I, you know, as you as you were saying that, I was recalling, you know, it's it seems to ring true to me because uh you know the famous matthew 16 18 uh 19 passage with peter being the rock you know you have get behind me satan you know with that very context oh yeah i think that that's a that's exactly where we uh, end up finding that the texts all lead us to gary is matthew sixteen eighteen, perhaps one of the most debated apologetic passages since the reformation uh, but you know what is often neglected is that that same passage, the same source material for that passage, is reproduced in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Let me uh, read that to you. I am he who lives and who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. And we see that we actually find some more pieces of material in here uh, that all go back the same tradition. And I think the real marvelous thing that's a discovery in this book is by showing you in plain English, but providing in an appendices, the Greek and the Aramaic and these sorts of thing texts, we're able to show you that Matthew 16, 18 and Revelation chapter 1 are explicitly restatements of the Old Testament passage of Isaiah 22. The real marvel of the book is by doing all the work for you, we were able to look at the Greek manuscripts, um, Latin, uh, old Latin uh, versions of Isaiah 22 and others. Now, Isaiah 22, mm-hmm. for those not familiar, uh, is what Jesus is quoting when he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And now there's been some debate for some reason, even in some scholarly circles, that Jesus could be directly quoting that passage. And what I've, what I've been able to uncover by looking at the manuscript tradition and, and doing all this footwork has been that there's not been a real interest in um, looking at the various versions of Isaiah 22. And what we ended up finding was that not only does the Hebrew um, play out tit for tat everything that happens in Isaiah 22, which is essentially uh, the king, uh, God, God as king, um, giving his second-in-command, David, the power to 
remove uh, and to appoint second uh, a second person in office to rule in his stead, and that this office is purely um, is not is not uh, genetic. It's not familial, but it's an official appointment. And this office is an office of binding and loosing. Um, and in fact, in Isaiah 22, what we were startled to find was the other individual in the Old Testament who has a parallel office to Isaiah 22's binding and loosing is actually uh, Patriarch Joseph, who in Psalm 105 is said that he bound princes. And that these two traditions are actually taken up by Jesus in the New Testament. So it's not just Matthew 16 and 18 that we're able to demonstrate which parts of the ancient texts are reproduced that Revelation is also relying on this when it talks about Jesus as the key holder, but, but also that uh, some of the mysteries of how the New Testament unfolds with the Constitution of the Church, how is these keys supposed to play out? How is the key holder, Peter, supposed to interact with the other apostles? We find out by Jesus also obliquely citing um, the story of Patriarch Joseph, who was a binder and looser of kings, as well. And what we find out is that Joseph is um, the youngest from among uh, the two mothers. He is from the youngest group of brothers. Uh, there's 12 brothers, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. So he is, in comparison to the other mother and her sons, he is the youngest um, amongst that group. And not only is he among the youngest um, total, so he's like uh, second to last. Benjamin's a little bit younger than he, uh, but he finds himself in charge of the entire country of Egypt. And there's a really interesting scene that Jesus obliquely refers to when he tells the apostles that Peter's job is to serve as the lesser or the younger at table to his other apostles as Jesus has served them at table. And he's actually, uh, we can prove by exclusivity in the Greek, that what Jesus is obliquely quoting is Genesis, where Joseph when he saw all his brothers at table, he was like the Egyptians, eating at a separate table. Egyptians ate at a table, and they refused to commune with foreigners. This is exactly the problem that Peter and Paul are having in Antioch. Hmm. And so the Gospel writers, when they're dealing with the worldwide schism, as far as we can tell, uh, that was brought about by Peter justly, but perhaps imprudently, or at least unconsciously causing um, a bad example, uh, and the followers uh, who brought about a schism throughout the church in the name of Paul. Paul denies this, of course, in Corinthians and in Galatians, where he says that uh, these individuals who claim to be on the party of Peter or, or, or baptizing in the party of Peter or representing him as Paul, he, he rejects the entire fallout from this. But what ends up happening is we find that uh, Jesus is recorded in the late Gospels responding to this idea of what Peter's role is, by saying that if he is going to be greater than everyone, then he needs to serve the rest at table. This is exactly what the patriarch Joseph does in Genesis. He's greater than everyone in the kingdom, and he goes from his table, where Egyptians excommunicate foreigners, including Jews, and he goes and he serves food at the table of his brothers, including his eldest brother, who is responsible for his near-death experience and being sold into, in, in, into slavery, and he gives a double portion of foodstuffs to Benjamin, and this is the example that Jesus wants Peter to imitate. And what's so beautiful about this is you begin to start seeing that once you can figure out what Jesus is referring to by these examples, you get a really clear sense of what apostolic authority starts to look like when Jesus says to serve and various other things. 
So uh, at this point, I'll just kind of uh, pause a second in case you have any comments, questions, or if William wants to jump in. Yeah, um, yeah those are very interesting insights. William, do you, do you want to add anything before the break? Yeah, before the break, I would I would double double down exactly and, and, and confirm exactly what Father said. He, he, he made a really good point, that point being that the examination of Isaiah 22 is a very, very clear one. And in the book, as he pointed out, Greek, Latin, the manuscript history is examined. But the one thing that I think is really important is that despite all of this sounding, wow, so difficult, it's written down in an incredibly easy to understand manner. And I can tell you that because I've looked over it many times and the very way that Isaiah 22 is broken down will show you without a shadow of a doubt that very clear connection. And you don't need to be a Greek or a Latin scholar to be able to see the exact points of connection. That, that's not the only other thing. Father alluded to it, but I'd like to let the audience know as well. We also have connect connections in the early church fathers. I'll let the audience know. It'll be a little bit of a teaser. People, a lot of the times, they, they tend to ask, okay, well, uh, this connection of Isaiah 22 and Matthew chapter 16, um, this is relatively recent. It isn't relatively recent. And in the book, we're going to show that the very thesis that is laid out in the book and the connection of, and more than just those passages, there's so much in the Bible, so much in the Bible, we show that there are multiple early church fathers that attest to our thesis. And, and the incredible thing, Gary, there, the book is a meaty book, very readable, but meaty, but we haven't even gotten to the point of how the hostile witnesses also confirm our thesis. Indeed, I've got to say, I really think that people are gonna be incredibly edified by this book. Yeah, yeah, it sounds fantastic. We're chatting with Father Christian Kappas and William Albrecht, talking about their upcoming book and uh, about the papacy. So more to come right after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. Now, back to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888 526 2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with William Albrecht and Father Christian Kappas about their upcoming book. Actually, it's a sneak preview. It's not even published yet. And the working title is Definitive Guide to the Papacy and Scripture. And uh, I love it already uh, because you're focusing on, you know, some areas that have been uh, a lot of research has been done in the areas like Matthew 16, Isaiah 22, and so on. However, you know, you're also expanded to areas where I think uh, very little attention or even connections have been made with the papacy. Uh, William, uh, uh, you know, I'll I'll let you pick it up from there because... Uh, I, I think all of this is very uh, uh, fascinating and interesting take on the papacy. Yeah, and I think that to, to pick it off, pick it up exactly where I, I left off. Uh, the one area as well, uh, and indeed we have multiple areas where you point on the book that I think is really important, and, and I've focused on this a lot in, in, in the many years that I've been doing apologetics, is that we truly believe that enemies of the faith, hostile witnesses, if you will, also prove the very thesis of our book. So you're going to find um, figures like Tertullian that are very heavily expanded upon, and indeed uh, multiple, multiple examinations of Tertullian that in the past, maybe you thought, okay, well, Tertullian and what he has to say about the papacy, you know, it's, it's just in passing. It's nothing really relevant or important. No, you're going to find that it's incredibly important to the office of the papacy, the role of St. Peter, 
and St. Peter's successors throughout history. And, and really, um, I'll hand it over to Father Coppice, uh, see what he'd like to add. But I think that that's also really incredibly important. Yeah, thank you, William. I think that uh, what the biblical part is, um, again, presenting it in plain English and making it easy to follow. If you have an interest in the uh, technicalities, we'll provide those in the footnotes, is an entire narrative to help you read from the epistles of Paul, which were the earliest, all the way through to the Gospels, and including Acts of the Apostles. We pretty much go through the entire Gospel, especially of Matthew and Acts, but what we end up discovering is um, that we can use the Council of Jerusalem, its decrees, and Peter's role there as the key to understanding what's happening in the 50s in Paul's epistles and what culminates uh, at Jerusalem in the 40s, and then the schism that's being reacted to by the Gospels by propping up Peter's role that Jesus gave him in response to some local churches misunderstanding the Paul and Peter uh, falling out. Well, we see that the hostile witnesses, and this includes um, in our conclusions, um, major discussions of Tertullian, who is living in the late 100s and early 200s, of Origen, who is mainly a 200s writer, though he spans that century as far as his life goes from the 100s to the 200s, and even Eusebius, who is, though not as aggressive uh, or um, as controversial as Origen, uh, certainly was someone that the fathers, meaning the canonized saints who left writings and are celebrated in our church, they, they were a bit suspicious of because he was a seminarian. So these hostile witnesses, uh, when we gather them together, we find that if we look at Tertullian's actual exegesis of Scripture, that is, that when he's doing the same thing that our first part of the book is doing, he comes to the same conclusions. That is, that the Catholic Church of his day is claiming that it has the power of these keys that is participated by every individual bishop, including the former, his former bishop in his local diocese, and that they believe that in virtue of these keys of Peter, that the Pope can bind and loose things like capital sins, as he calls them, mortal sins from First John. And what does he think these mortal sins are? Adultery. He thinks that these mortal sins are fornication. In his mind, in what he calls a new prophecy, so he's admitting that this prophecy movement is only in the last couple decades, the Church has lost its license to remit and to retain sins because they have rejected the new prophecy movement, and for Tertullian, by rejecting the new prophecy movement, the new charismatic movement, so to speak, um, he says that they've lost any claims that they had to those keys, which all the bishops, especially the Pope, whom he does not like very much, issued a worldwide decree that claims that it is from the Pope's own mouth, his own declarations that are going to be nailed up on churches uh, as decrees that uh, the Pope has the uh, tenacity and the, um, in his mind, pride to try to forgive sins. Not that the Pope would do something internationally, not that he's writing letters that are being received in North Africa, which is exactly what we see with Origen. Uh, We see that the role of uh, the Episcopate in light of Matthew 16, 18, is that it has this power to bind in the loose, and Origen is a hostile witness, because he's kind of teed off at his local bishop, who uh, basically bound him, not loosed him, uh, for getting a little bit too big for his britches, uh, and not thinking he was a deacon, but thinking that he was kind of a worldwide celebrity. And so, uh, as a hostile witness, Origen is actually criticizing his bishop because he believes his bishop is not 
morally good enough, that is, he's too prideful uh, to excommunicate Origen. Uh, of course, the, uh, la- the church has the last laugh on that, because pretty much every ecumenical council since the 6th <laughs> century, he's, uh, he himself has been uh, not exactly spoken of well as being a, a bad example. So what we finally then get to is with a hostile witness of Eusebius, who actually tells us by digging up ancient documents, just like Tertullian does, that the only reason why popes changed their mind on disciplinary decisions in their own days, whether we're talking about Tertullian or Eusebius in his uh, reproduction of Irenaeus' documents, is when popes got information about disciplinary decrees or information about previous uh, papal uh, comings and goings that they didn't know before. And it was in light of this that they changed their opinion when they got resistance, not because they had any sense that they did not have the fullness of the power of the keys, which, of course, uh, we find in our investigations that Origen himself admits that the principle of all authority in the church, which is participated by the other bishops, is that universal jurisdiction of Peter. What about you, William or uh, Gary? Any uh, thoughts or questions? Yeah, that's uh, (laughs) very good stuff. I mean, how it's all knit together. Um, I'm surprised. uh, Did Cyprian of Carthage have any input in your book? Because, I mean, he's famous for his controversy with uh, Pope St. Stephen. Yeah, Yeah, he he definitely does. And very, uh, very interesting you bring up St. Cyprian because he plays a very key role in in talking about St. Peter as, as that rock. And we focus upon that heavily in the book. And uh, indeed, the words of St. Cyprian are, tell us, the Lord says to Peter, I say to you, he says, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. On him, Peter, he builds the church, and to him he gives the command to feed the sheep. And although he assigns a like power to all the apostles, yet he founded a single chair, and he established by his own authority a source and an intrinsic reason for that unity. Notice how he talks about Matthew 16 there and John chapter 21 there. So really, really important early patristic witnesses. And we do focus on patristic witnesses to identifying, uh, commenting in Matthew chapter 16. That's a great, great point you bring up there, Gary. Also, another important point that Father brought up about Tertullian is indeed when Tertullian is railing against what he, uh, who he calls the Pontifex Maximus, uh, it's very interesting that you look at this kind of language of Tertullian. Tertullian is not being kind at all to the Catholic Church. He is no longer a part of it. He has formally left the church. But all the while, as he begins to attack the Catholic Church, he confirms the very thesis of the book and the very things that the church has been saying about St. Peter and the successors from the very beginning, because he's attacking the very successor at that time of Peter. And he's saying he's pretty much confirming everything that we believe about the office, about the role of Peter, all the while attacking him. Gary, I've got to say, I think it's really, really significant, the witness of origin. And as Father pointed out, uh, I don't know if it'd be correct to call, I think a few fathers were a bit suspicious that Eusebius was, was an Arian sympathizer. Wouldn't that be correct, Father? Yeah, I think he's generally classed with the uh, semi-Arians and uh, was not really considered a, a pro-Nicene with some resistance in his no. background. So, yeah, we could call him a, a hostile witness. Yeah, yeah, yeah very interesting. Yeah, the, I, I love that. And, of course, William, you know, 
that that approach really rings true to me because uh the beautiful thing about House of the Witnesses is, is you can't claim that it's some sort of Catholic bias or anything. If there is a bias, it's definitely against, you know, things that we would defend. So uh, they're sterling witnesses for the ancient faith. Absolutely. Yeah. One, la- one last piece, too, that'll be really beautiful, uh, at least in the before we get to uh, William kind of summing up all the later post-Nicene patristic witnesses, is the fact, too, that we have uh, new investigations into St. Ignatius of Antioch, who mm. also develops our thesis about the significance of, li- of talking about when Jesus is sitting and teaching, or the apostles sitting and teaching. Of course, your listeners may be familiar with rabbis teach by sitting authoritatively, and there's even evidence that there is something that in each synagogue is physically the chair of Moses, from which they can uh, provide these decrees. Um, in a very similar way, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, we show, again, philologically, that is, we show you in plain English, but at the same time provide you with the Greek references so you can see that Ignatius has a very strong sense that in his absence in Antioch, it is the papacy, that is, the church in Rome, who is going to be taking over the administration of that church. And then he goes so far as to say, if you read his language quite clearly, that as he presides over his local community as God the Father with his presbyters, who are like the apostles, and he says they also, along with him, rule over or preside over the community, so the Roman Church presides over the entire Church. People oftentimes miss this. The very same vocabulary and parallels are being made. So for Ignatius, there's at least a a trifold hierarchy. There is the Church of Rome, which presides over in love over all the churches, and at least in the absence of a bishop, over the churches where there's an absent bishop. Secondly, there is the local bishop, which presides over his local church people, along with his priests, which are an extension of his ministry. And then lastly, there are the priests themselves, as extensions of their bishop, who within that local community preside over the faithful. And so what we see is the Pope both presides over the faithful uh, when he directly acts administratively in Antioch, but also the local bishop properly presides over the faithful when he is present and governing. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I I love Ignatius of Antioch. And I always wondered about uh, that uh, particular area because that caught my attention, too. But I never seen anybody actually, you know, break that apart and explicate it. So that's awesome. I hear the music coming up, gentlemen. Unfortunately, we have to stop, but I'm sure we'll have you both back on the show and we could go further into this. Look forward to being back. All right. All right. So uh, that's Father Christian Kappas and William Albrecht. And you guys, sneak peek into their future book. And we'll talk more about that, too. Uh, It's already time for me to shut down the Midwest Command Center here at Trinidad and Delta Life. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up next, High Impact Capital Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. 